You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. When I first got my blue belt in jiu-jitsu, I went to a competition and I'm, I'm ready to go compete for the very first time at Blue Belt. Now, in jiu-jitsu, Blue Belt is like level two, right? It's the first belt that you earn beyond white belt, which you don't earn. You are simply given. I show up to the map. My friend Theron says, oh, you know who you're going against? No. He goes, you're going against so-and-so from California. He's ranked five in the world. I go, oh, gee, thank you for telling me that. Thank you for ruining this experience for me. Now I know I'm going to get my butt kicked. And I went out there and I got my butt kicked worse than I ever had before and worse than I ever had since. I think I lost 27 to 0, which for those of you that understand the jiu-jitsu scoring system, recognize that that's really hard to do. (laughs) It's really hard to lose that bad. Uh, I would have felt better about getting choked or getting my arm bit behind my back within, you know, first few seconds than getting 27 points scored on me. Five years later, I go compete at a higher level at Purple Belt. And I show up to the mat and my friend Theron is there and he says, oh, do you know who you're competing against? I said, oh my gosh, rolled my eyes. I know how it went last time he did this. I go, No. He goes, you're competing from so-and-so from Brazil. He is number one in the world. And what would have shocked the version of me five years in the past is that I went out there and I beat this guy submission within 60 seconds. And it's not because I'm so good at jujitsu. It's not because um, I learned some special technique. It's because I changed the way that I think about the match. I certainly haven't mastered it. If I had mastered my mindset when it comes to jujitsu, I would maybe be known more for my jujitsu than for uh, this podcast or my business or wealth management. But it got me really interested in combat sports psychology, sports psychology, and ultimately this way of thinking that was inspired by my own coaches led me to Mindset Mike, our guest today. Mike Moore is a former FBI crisis negotiator with seven years of experience, a mindset coach to top athletes and businesses through his company, The Unfair Advantage. He's a seasoned wrestling coach as well with 19 years of experience. He was a three-time NCAA championship coach and former NCAA Division One wrestler. He has an impressive track record of nurturing talent. He's got over 100 state placers, 50-plus All-Americans, nine national champions, and he's helped high-level athletes, teams, and businesses um, transform their mindset over the past 10 years. He's worked with UFC champions and professional athletes of all different sports. Uh, we got into it today and talked about Um, A lot of the work that he's done in the UFC, if you're an MMA fan, you'll recognize all of these names. If you're not uh, an MMA fan, then you may have trouble keeping up with some of the uh, the who's who of what we talked about. But we talked about some concepts that are applicable to your life, whether you're a fan of the UFC or not. 
We talked about recognizing and improving your mindset status, finding and attracting your ideal client, managing your ego, outlining clear boundaries for who and what receives the energy that you put out, and then doing an alignment audit, figuring out what matters to you, why it matters to you, and measuring your input, not the results from it. So if you want to improve your mindset, there is no one better than Mindset Mike. Enjoy our conversation. I'm Sager Smith, and this is Decidedly. Dude, I normally keep them covered, but I'm thrilled to have somebody on the show that makes my ears look good. Yeah, uh, right. You're you're you're, do, you're uh, doing me a favor there, man. Why? I, listen, it's always good to hang around people with cauliflower ears. Where no matter where you got it, whether it's MMA, jiu-jitsu, or wrestling, we're still all cut from a similar cloth and suffered the same ear death. Oh yeah. It, you know what I get a lot is uh, do you box? And I didn't know that that was a real problem with boxer. That's that's it the makes mo- sense. I guess like the impact, like wrestling and jujitsu is usually grinding over time. But I, I know that you can get cauliflower through a sudden impact because it's destruction of cartilage. So my guess. That's the layperson's point of view. In my experiences, oh, he's a boxer. I kind of get offended. Yeah, no, we actually can't throw hands at all. Yeah, no, I actually don't know anything about that, dude. I first heard about you because uh, Kevin Holland was getting ready for a fight and he trains at Travis, Travis Ludershim, which is where I trained jujitsu and his um, coach, Justin, he's always shit talking in the locker room until Kevin's fights coming up. And then he's real positive because, Oh, Kevin's going to kick this guy's ass. He's always excited. This one fight, it must've been a year or two ago. And he goes, Oh, well, let me tell you why Kevin's going to kick this guy's ass. Cause we got mindset Mike in our corner now. And then I started reading about what you were doing, and then I started to hear it's kind of like the you know yellow, uh, yellow slug bug concept. You, you see it once, and then you see it everywhere. Oh yeah, I started hearing yeah. everybody's talking about mindset, Mike. All of a sudden, like, dude, who the hell is this guy? That's so me. you have a fascinating story, man. You were a college wrestler, go to the FBI, and then now coach athletes, fighters, business owners on improving their mindset. I want to start at the beginning. Sure. When you were a wrestler, were you always, um, did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in it? Not necessarily as a wrestler, but you know, were you in love with it back then? Yeah, I was always in love with wrestling. And actually the reason that I chose to wrestle division one was not as much for the fact of that. I wanted to be a division one, all American or anything like that. I knew I always wanted to coach. Um, and I knew that if I wrestled at a division one school that was equitably good in the academics that I wanted, that that would prepare me to do that. So I had planned on being in the FBI my whole life and then running a wrestling club on the side. Uh, I was always passionate about sports psych, but in college, when I started really exploring that as an option, this was what, 2000, 2004 to 2008. So completely different generation and set of circumstances. Social media really didn't exist. So if you wanted to be in sports psych and do it at the level that I wanted to, you had to know somebody who knows somebody to like get into the Olympic training center or to a professional sports team. And similarly, I was interested in becoming like a physical therapist, but I didn't want to work on sedentary people. No offense to 
anyone that's sedentary. I just, I wanted to work with just athletes. Um, I wanted to be a detective, but I didn't want to be a cop first. Right. So, you know, the, the, the path for me to do any of those things was not really what I wanted. So yeah. the FBI was why I went to school. That was my, that was my passion. I pursued a lot of like psych related things in the school and the FBI. And then ultimately like coaching wrestling, running a club is what led me to do this now. So I was always passionate about it. Would have liked a career in it, but it was never really an option. So what were you like as a kid? The the people that I know that go have a really successful military career, FBI, CIA, whatever, it seems like they all have the same story of, I always wanted to do this. That's how I knew it wasn't right for me as I started talking to these guys and go, oh, I'm the only one that didn't always want to do this. Was, yeah. Was that, when were you first thinking, hey, FBI is the way to go? Uh, so I, like the idea might've crossed my mind, like as I was in high school, but, uh, September 11th, 2001 was really the day that I decided that I wanted to be in the FBI. Uh, I'm a New Yorker. So I want, like, I, I was in Long Island at the time. You could see the smoke from the towers. They were calling kids out from class to tell them whose parents worked in the trade center to uh, two planes at the trade center. So I was going through like a, what did they call it? My statistics teacher was a great teacher. He did way more than statistics. He made us do like a, a career report, a career, I don't know, some sort of research project. And what career do you want for the rest of your life? Yeah, he yeah. Did like career aptitude tests, stuff like that. And law enforcement was like one of the options. It fit all the skill sets, but all I, you know, all I really thought of was like being a cop. And then all of a sudden, I see Robin Mueller and Rudy Giuliani walking through. Uh, ground zero. And I'm like, I want to be a part of that. You know, I, I knew law enforcement was an option, but that's what I wanted to be a part of. So pretty much that's the day that I decided, like, I, I went back home, I did my research and I'm like, federal law enforcement or like government intelligence was going to be the route I was going to take. Yeah. Oh, I bet that was a tremendously impactful experience being in New York. Whenever you, whenever you locked your eyes on that, when was wrestling part of a, a career path? When did that come into it? It was always there. I was, I've, I've had nothing but great coaches throughout my time as a wrestler. So I always wanted to do what they did. I was naturally, I was kind of like a natural born leader. So I was in leadership roles and one day wanted the opportunity to mentor my own people, my own way, you know, whether it's as a, I, I had envisioned being a high school coach or like an assistant high school coach where I grew up, you didn't have to teach the coach. And then everywhere else mm. I went, you had to teach the coach. So it was hard to be an assistant coach at high school. So I ended up starting my own club. So where, when I chose where to go to school, I chose where to go to school specifically because they produced more FBI agents than anybody in the country. And they had the wrestling program that I wanted. Not wrestling in college was an option. So I led with academics, but I needed like a wrestling component and you know, when I went to the University of Maryland, that was the, that was uh, realistically a really good fit for me. Yeah. Did you envision at the time that your coaching career would be a, a prominent career choice or was it, hey, this is more of like a hobby, a side gig to the FBI career? Hobby, for sure. Um, I thought it would be something I would do on my spare time that I was passionate about. And ultimately, as time went on in my FBI career, I became more and more disconnected to the reasons why I started. I was sticking around for the benefits. I was sticking around 
uh, for the job security. Like it was cool. But when I started, I was in a different position with different circumstances in DC. When I transferred to Houston, very different culture. I took a different position so I could coach and have a regular schedule. And um, just the nature of what it was in Houston made me realize that I am more passionate about pursuing a coaching career than I am wanting to stay here. My reasons to leave were greater than my reasons to stay. It took me about two years to pull the trigger, yeah. but you know, ultimately, I always thought this would be a hobby and I was FBI for life. Yeah, you're saying a lot of the things that our clients tell me when they're ready to move on from a business that when they started it, they thought was the, the best thing they could ever possibly do with their life. Or maybe they didn't even start, maybe dad or mom started it. Oh, this is the great, this is like my life calling. And then at some point, it, it's not that anymore. And, and that's okay. But when they run away from it, that's a problem. When they're moving to right. something that is much better and much more fulfilling and much more long lasting, that's when it's a great decision. I agree. I think a lot of people lose sight of their why. The same thing happens in fighting. You know, when I worked with Jean Wei Li uh, for a couple of fights, her issue wasn't anything to do with fighting. There were some things after the losses to Rose and things like that that was that held her back, but that was really less compared to when ESPN interviewed me. I was saying she lost her love for fighting. She lost the reasons yeah. why she started. She lost the desire. So she has this skill, but what got her here isn't what's going to get her there. And falling in love with fighting again was that. So that's where she went from, you know, having uh, a knockout loss to a tough loss to being smiling and happy and murdering everybody. That's what she was so notable about her personality, you know, is that she was always, especially in her last fight, smiling and just like she's thrilled to be there in the press conferences like and the that. way. Yeah, like now it's just, that's what I think of when I think of Zhang Weili is she is just thrilled. And that story seems really common in the in combat sports for someone to get to a champion like she did. She's the champion of the UFC. You can't get better than that. And you kind of lose, you know, life is a lot easier. It's not, it's not the grind that it was, you know, when they first started on the amateur scene. How do you re, how do you find the love again? Well, I, I say that we have to be in alignment. If we want to achieve goals, we have to be in alignment. We have to know and be connected to why we're doing it, what we love about it and how we can get better. People usually lack at least two of those. Um, but at a minimum it's one. So being, having a strong connection to like, what I would say is your big why, like, well, why do you fight? Cause I love fighting. Well, why is, why do you love fighting? Why is that important? To you? Why is that important? To you? Why is that important? To you? Um, that's more so your big why. So, uh, Michi said a man who knows his why can bear any how. So when your why is clear, how is easy, right? So during tough times, whether it be relationships, business, you know, your sports career, whatever. What's more important, why you're frustrated or why you started this and wanted to continue to do this in the first place. So when that is clear, that's the most important, then you got to connect why you're doing it with what you love. We have an idea of what we like or love about our jobs and our sport. But when I ask people, so what do you love about fighting? What do you love about wrestling? They, they might have like an answer or two. That's not enough yeah. on, on a yeah. bad day. That's not enough. 
So it's, what do you love about training? What do you love about competing? What do you love about fight day? What do you love about fight week? What are the things about your sport in general that you really enjoy that like bring you joy that, uh, that make you happy? Because like Wei Lee, happy fighters are dangerous fighters. You cannot be happy if you are not fulfilled and you can't be fulfilled unless you're doing something that you love and are deeply connected to why you're doing it. A lot of what you're saying is, it sounds a lot like what I tell our clients. They're in a totally different world. They're not professional athletes. They're not fighting anybody ever, but they, they want to get better with their money. And usually yeah. that's why they come to me. So I want, uh, you know, want to make more money. I want my investment returns to be better. I want to be able to sell my company and know that I could retire something along those lines. And that's what I lead with is, well, what's important about your money to you? What do you like about your company? Uh, what do you like about your life? Why do you have this company? And yeah. hardly anybody's first answer is even remotely close to what the truth is. <laughs> 100%. And, 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 and here's the thing is that everyone knows what they want, but they don't know why and how to get there, right? Like that's why goal setting is very empty, right? Like you can set a goal to save a certain amount of yeah. money, you set a goal to be a UFC champion. Well, why you're going to get there is what's going to allow you to deal with the ups and the downs and taking a while to get to the UFC and you know, losing some fights, getting like really crappy judges decisions. The other thing is that, especially in combat sports, very old school of like outwork everyone, uh, you know, like hard work will pay off. That is the biggest crock of shit for the top like 5%. Like if you want to be just good at something, hard work matters. If you're on the regional scene, hard work matters. You want to make six figures, maybe even low seven figures, hard work matters. When you're at the top 1%, which is the majority of the people that I work with, um, when you're a one percenter, it's not hard work, it's smart work. And that's where the how comes in. You can know why you want to do it. You can know what you love and what you want, but having a strategic how, like intentionally, measurably, that's regularly assessment oriented, that how is what gets you there. And it's so different for you, right? You don't look at something every quarter you look at something every month, every couple of weeks, right? You're yeah. constantly evaluating. You don't say once a year, we're going to look at your books. Yeah, absolutely. And for someone to get to the point where they're considering working with you, they're, they're one of the best. And maybe I'm guessing a lot of them are going, holy crap, you know, more bench presses isn't going to win me this next fight. <laughs> more, more hard sparring rounds is not the answer. What do I do? And that's why they're even open to... To, to listening to your perspective, when you find the, sure. these these men and women that you coach that are stuck, how often are they aware of the problem within themselves in the way that you can articulate it? Because you and I can talk because we can see this problem really clearly. I find that my clients don't come to me saying, oh, well, I just don't understand my why. And that's, that's why I want your help with. Yeah. So... I'll say a couple things. So before I started this company called The Unfair Advantage, so I'll explain why it's called that. I was the one of the directors in a large male performance company that mainly catered to wrestling. So their niche market was really like high school teams, um, high school and middle school individuals, and some college. Now, I, I just was personally working with a lot of people out of that niche, which is ultimately what led me into this niche where like, I'm only going to work with these people. I'm not going to travel around the country, go to middle school events, high school events, so that I can pay the bills when all I want to and all I really work with are people winning NCAA championships and UFC titles. So 
people, I would say there's three tiers of people that approach mindset training in general. 90% of athletes, like most people, mindset is their Achilles heel. It is genuinely holding them back. The top 9% of people, those are people where mindset is at a struggle, but it could definitely be a competitive edge. So something where like, I'm in the middle of the pack, like I want to jump levels, hard work necessarily isn't it. I need to get more out of myself. The 1% level, and and I would say like, that's my niche, but I definitely spend time like yeah. in that top five, 10% level. But, you know, I don't really work with many people that have problems. We all have things that we need to fix, but I work in that five, 10% level focused on that 1% niche. The one percenters, they don't really have an issue. Everyone's got stuff to work on. What they're looking is gasoline on a good fire. What can I do? Let's take UFC. What can I do that everybody else isn't doing? Where I can get more out of myself what I need it the most, and that's not going to pop me on a drug test. That's where I come in, right? Like 10 years ago, it was just take steroids, right? It, uh, you know, 10 years ago, it was start wrestling. Well, now all the wrestlers are in the UFC. All the Dagestanis are taking over, right? Like wrestling, wrestling's been around. It's like, what can I possibly do to get the most out of, to perform my best when I need it the most? The unfair advantage, where does that come from? I felt like, in my previous career, you know, there came a point where our company sold our worksheets online, which is fine. A lot of people do that. Um, I felt like, you know, we, we gave the same training to everyone, which is fine. That's how you scale. But I had figured out some things on my own that had my clients winning consistently at a high level. And I don't want to share that with everyone. I don't want to yeah. work with everybody. And not because I only want to work with good people. I want to give you an advantage that feels unfair because the other people can't get it. Unless they worked with me, they can't get it. So that's why I want them to feel like you have an unfair advantage when you compete. Um, almost like it should be an NCAA violation for us to work together because the your ability to compete is just so unfair. If you can unlock, you know, an additional performance boost that's all within my head, I'm, heck yeah, I'm up for it. But if it's on a YouTube video series, <laughs> you know, the guy across the map from me probably has it too. Yeah, and listen, like our, our the, the, my last company, is, is, their, their stuff is very effective. Um, I just found myself having to fill in a lot of holes for the higher level people. So I realized that my calling was doing this with higher level people. And on the exception that I don't work with, like a 1%, I'm helping them close the gap. So either we're trying to solve, either we're trying to do damage control, we're trying to close the gap on good people, or we're at the top. And how do I widen the gap? How do I... How do I continue to rem to show everyone how much farther apart they are for me? Yeah. Yeah. That, that does make sense. So what happened in your life where you realized that you had this unique ability and skill that other coaches didn't? It's a great question. So I think I've always been a natural born leader. I've always been very outgoing. I was always leadership driven. That was always something I was good at was bringing the best out of people on a casual level. Then when I opened up my wrestling academy, I mean, even in the FBI, like I was, I was peer elected unanimous to give the speech at our graduation. Like I was always that guy. So I knew I had the, this ability to lead and coaching is, is obviously like such a servant leadership role where you get to help other people realize their potential. This really came to be when I was running a club in Houston and the second year I ran the club, I had 13 kids in the state finals out of my club. Nine should have won and five kind of shit the bed. 
And I was like, I don't understand how that happened. Like physically prepared, mentally prepared, had all the right advice. They got great high school coaches too. There's no reason for them to have performed poorly. And then I yeah. realized that like everything else in our training was so systematic, but the reason they failed, which was here and here, I gave them good advice, but they didn't have a system, a process and a set of tools to build, train and execute mindset the way that we have a set of system process and tools to pass guard, get takedowns, hand fight, and get stronger. So I sought out my last company, Wrestling Mindset, as a as a client. I saw how much it helped. They saw how much I understood the material. Um, I started coaching with them. And then I was one of the original eight coaches. There's about 130 now. And in that time, when I started taking clients, I'm like, oh, I'm good at this. Like, I'm really good at this. I don't even know what I'm doing, but my natural set of skills with a curriculum, like I'm good at this. And then I started getting more and more results. I got access to more and more higher level people. I traveled, I learned, I traveled, I learned. I was on 60 plus flights a year, like doing all this stuff. And really it was COVID where things took a turn for me. And during COVID when I couldn't travel, I was like, well, I got to start coming up with, I've got all these ideas that I use with different teams circumstantially. I was like, I got to come up yeah. with like a systematic way to talk about the things that are different than what my company does um, so that I can deliver this at scale. Since COVID, I'll give you some crazy stats. Since COVID, I've had 18 people be number one in the country or the world, nine world, 10 world championships as of this weekend, two UFC titles, Bellator title, I can name the others, uh, five college national championships, including three NCAA titles from two teams in the last three years. I don't say any of that to brag. What I, what I say that is I kind of figured out like the formula to what I need and the type of client that I need and what they need to know. And if I have the right fit of a client, they trust me 100%, they give me what they need. I can not guarantee that they win it all, but I can guarantee that like, we're going to have very significant results because I've had a long resume of teams go from three and nine to 10 and three, losing for 11 straight years to winning their first back-to-back -back national championship. I cracked the code. What is it about someone's mindset before they start working with you that makes them a good candidate? Because I imagine you're even at the top 1%, you're turning some people down. I turn a bunch of people down. Since I left my company, I've turned more people down in the last four months than I've turned down in like seven years. And that's a really great question. I must say, you're asking, been on a lot of podcasts. These are really good questions. I appreciate it. What makes a good client? So Ashley Evans-Smith asked this for me, uh, asked this to me. And to paraphrase what I said, I need someone who's emotionally intelligent. So they have a general understanding of their thoughts and their feelings. You know, they're not a caveman, man or woman. Um, yeah. I need someone who's coachable. I need someone who's willing to be vulnerable. Uh, the more vulnerable they are, the easier that it is, but they just can't have a brick wall up because it's not my job to knock it down. Um, yeah. I would say last wall I had it knocked down was Wei Li, and I was very incentivized to help her knock that wall down because she's Zhang Wei Li. Um, you know, she was very rigid in the beginning, stone-faced, like poor answers, didn't, you know, she didn't know much about emotions. She knew how to work hard. And yeah. 
And now you see the difference. A happy fighter is a dangerous fighter. So emotional intelligence, vulnerability, um, they got to they, they, they gotta trust me and they have to be good at their sport. They don't have to be great, but they have to be proficient. It doesn't matter if you're a black belt, you have to be a proficient, skilled black belt. I don't care if you're a blue belt. You, you need to be a proficient, skilled blue belt. Um, I try to like avoid barriers like for individuals or teams that would hold us back. So like a poor culture, something like a culture that is like bred on entitlement. Not that it can't exist, but in order for me to be effective, I can't spend the entire first year doing damage control. So yeah. I'm willing to take on the challenge when it's correct, but that's essentially like what makes a great client for me. And if you know women, then you know that a high level woman fits like cookie cutter right into exactly what I said. So I I tell people like I, I love working with anyone that's at a high level who's coachable, that's willing to do all the things, but I can get a lot done with women in a short amount of time because of their level of emotional intelligence. Yeah, in my experience, women are a lot more advice receptive. You know, I often have men come in and 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 it's like if you're willing to sit down with me, you're you're at least willing to admit that you might not know everything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so like at least we're somewhere. And I've found that women, I usually don't have to convince them to do what I recommend. I mean, once they trust me, they will go, well, whatever you say, we're going to do that. We're going to put that in place. Okay. We're going to get this done with the business, et cetera, et cetera. With men, it's, I'll have some of them disagree with me. I'll have, sometimes it turns into a debate <laughs> about a topic that I've studied my whole life that you just learned about five minutes ago, or I'll have go. them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, How did he go? I'll That's even it. have have men say, oh yeah, 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 yeah. And they just not do it. Um, yep. So it's, it, it's, I just don't see that with women. Women have, there's a lot of things that's, that men can, men have that benefit them that women struggle with. You know, men typically will um, be more, ask for what they want more directly. You know, they're, they're able to go get what they, what they have their eyes set on where I'll see women are struggling with, uh, I don't even feel good about wanting to want that. Uh, so it's a totally different mindset problem that I notice. But for sure. other than women, you know, who have the emotional intelligence uh, and the the vulnerability, they're advice receptive. Um, what are some things that people say that tip you off where you go, ah, no, 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 no. You're, you're, you're going to be a problem for me. Uh, people that make it seem that like, yeah, I've already done stuff like this or, you know, like these are things that we already <laughs> yeah. do. Um, you know, like just a presence of an ego that is bigger than their desire to get better. Um, everything dies with the ego. You know, ego is the birth of entitlement. Ego, ego allows wins to not, causes wins to not feel so good and causes failure to feel awful. When you're just obsessed with getting better, then, you know, the wins and the losses are just part of the process, like leading to the end of the road. So I, I would say just like anything that shows like pride or ego, someone can have pride or ego as long as they show that the willingness to want to set it aside and like be able to take advice. Um, but yeah, it's usually just along those lines, like pride, ego, and I'm sure you see this in money management. A $500 yeah. client will ask 6,500 questions uh, they'll be three weeks late to pay you. And then, uh, they, they, they won't be satisfied with what they got. A $50,000 client will say, show me your results. Tell me how you're doing it. 
And uh, okay, where do I send the check? Where do we start? Yeah, that that you nailed it. it typically, the people that we are um, doing the most for and we're charging the most are the happiest. And okay. and that's hard for some people to understand. Like, well, why can't you just work with me? I know it's not. I know that you know maybe it's not as much money as the other people. I go, man. I, in my experience, we end up doing a lot more work sometimes for uh, for a smaller client or a client, you know, I don't want to say small, but a client that on the surface, it appears that there's less work to do and yeah. uh, they're not as happy. I don't know what it is. It's, it's just the nature of where they're at. Like people got to the level of success that they didn't for different reasons. And Tony Robbins says, everyone complains about resources. What it is, is a lack of resourcefulness. Um, and ultimately the ultimate resources are emotional states. So if I can learn to make your mind and heart a weapon, then that's why I can be an asset to anybody. It doesn't matter how good you are. The only person that I can't help are the people that have the egos and uh, are just genuinely bad at like what they, like they're not good at what they do. And I have, like I said, it's it's nothing against people that lack the skill, but I remember working with someone who they were just not good at the sport yet and they would get pinned a lot. And yeah. I just can't, I can't teach mental skills to someone that's no matter what they do, they, they need another year, you know, uh, yeah. to be able to do that. But I, I know I've learned, I hired a business coach when I left my company to better understand not just business, but productivity. He was phenomenal. I don't know if you ever followed his stuff. His name's Rich Webster and mm -hmm. Rich, he wrote a course called how to work less. And I was a member of his course twice and I did four one-on-ones with him. Well, I guess I did three of the four. And I learned so much about business and productivity. And, you know, I your ideal client is your ideal client. And one of the things that he taught me is, you know, you don't make concessions for people unless they are someone that you want to work with. If you want to work with them, you will make those concessions, but you will like outline clear boundaries as to what it would be. So that's something that I've done a much better job versus, you know, I would, you know, on my come up, I would take anyone and everyone. Yeah. yeah. The I think we've all been I there. <laughs> I realized I was wasting my 80, 20, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and maybe even doing a disservice to those people. You're doing yeah. a disservice to your top clients because you can't really devote as much attention to them. You're doing a disservice to these, uh, you know, less impactful clients because probably they'd be better off with the cheaper option. Hey, just, you know, go watch a few YouTube videos. Like, I, you know, I probably can't help you that much. You're not going to let me I in anyway. See, you mentioned that. Okay. That's, that's another thing that pisses me off is when I just posted about it too the other day is that like, do not tell me that you have fixed your mindset issues by reading books, listening to podcasts <laughs> um, or watching YouTube, because if that's the case, I want you to yeah, stop yeah. training right now. No physical training. All I want you to do is read books, listen to podcasts, and watch YouTube videos. And let me know how much you develop your skill. Yeah. Yeah. It, consuming is not going to get you where you want to be. There's got to be some sort of work involved. Do you know the science behind learning? I'm confident that it's not nearly as well as you. Uh, so 5% you retain by listening. 30% okay. you retain by by watching or reading, 75% you retain by doing, 90% you retain by teaching, 
which is why those of us that teach classes at jujitsu and things like that, we get way better. Wrestling coaches get way better. So the difference between listening to something or reading something is at a minimum, almost two and a half times less effective at a minimum than wow. doing some sort of training. It's helpful. It's educational, but yeah. you're not going to get better tangibly, measurably the same way that you would if you did some sort of pen to paper, uh, you know, curriculum driven program. Treat your phys treat your mental training the same way you treat physical training, which is again the reason why I only work with a certain group of people who see that sort of thing. The middle tier group of people, the low tier group of people, they're like, no, I'm I'm, I'm good reading like 37 books this year. Like that's all I need. Yeah. And there's no plan to put work into action for those folks. It, it's almost impossible for me to not manage money well for myself <laughs> because I spend so much time, you know, digging into it and talking with people. And it so, makes you so much better. Yeah, 100%. I mean, teaching is like just such a, a superpower. If if you teach something, oh my gosh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I understand it backwards and forwards because I understand how to explain the question that, I thought couldn't even be asked. Right. And, and, and that's super, super evident in the things I've been fortunate enough to teach. What's why both of us have gotten better at our job over the years, because the more that we teach it, the better that we get at it. And then on top of that, we're probably seeking out resources to continue enrich our own development. Um, but I could read a bunch of business books. I can listen to Rich's course but yeah. doing the homework and doing the one-on-one -on -one sessions, like that's where I got the results. Yeah, actually putting in the sweat. There's no no like magic pill. And I imagine every now and then, probably less, hopefully less and less as you have more and more success, but imagine people come to you thinking that you're gonna, you know, teach them a little, a little trick, essentially, that they didn't have to earn. Yeah, and that's never going to work. And and I get that too. You know, people also, oh, you probably have some investment strategy that's going to get me, you know, like you're, there's nothing I can do. You know, if you don't have a base level of, of yeah. wealth, uh, unfortunately, you know, we're probably not going to be able to help you. Um, but if you do, and you've demonstrated the ability. That's why the best clients, like when they come to me, they don't assume that I'm going to solve all their problems. They understand that it's a process. You know, they're like, I I'm doing, I I'm willing to do whatever it takes. You just let me know. Um, and, you know, that's, I think people's problem is that they, uh, they, they don't understand like what makes a good or bad client because yeah. they're more focused on just making money. So something that happened to me and other wealth advisors is like, I can see someone and within a couple minutes of meeting them. I kind of know whether they really have money. You know, I'm like, ah, you know, I can kind of judge based on the things you say, the things you don't say, how well you're probably doing financially. Right. When you observe other athletes, what are the things that show you that they have a good mindset and the things that don't? And these are people that maybe, maybe you don't even meet on me, you know, maybe you just watch them perform. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great question. Uh, poise, their ability to not lose their, like their ability to maintain emotional control um, their ability to give and receive like critical feedback, how intentional it seems like they're, they're being in their practices and they're sparring the effort that they put in 
Um, you know, are they working hard when it's convenient or are they working hard to exhaustion every single round? Uh, and again, I don't mean that you're supposed to wear yourself out every round and, and, you know, drain your tank, just effort, like effort is clear. It just has to be consistent, right? I would say people that are asking a lot of questions. So usually when I go to like a university, the best kids on the team are usually the ones raising their hands the most because they're like, tell me whatever I need. Like, let me know what I could do. Like, how, how can I possibly get better? The most accomplished coach that I work with in college sports is the person who asks me hands down the most questions, who's the most mm. vulnerable, who's because she just cares about getting better for her team, getting better for herself. Like she's so hungry to learn that there's no ego between the two of us. And this is a woman that's won 11 national titles as a coach and athlete. Yeah, there's something um, that gets in the way, I think, when men suffer this a lot more of like, oh, if I ask, then it reveals that I don't know and not knowing right. is a mortal sin. And I don't want to do that. So that that makes sense. They look at asking questions as looking unknowledgeable versus other people and most women accepting groups they see asking questions as like an opportunity to get the answer quicker. High performers yeah. see it as an opportunity to get the answer quicker. High performers are more solution efficient. They're not necessarily more talented than medium performers. They're more solution efficient. They're more focused on the things that they can control. And they're going to leverage all of the resources that they have around them so that they can control those things better. The medium level people will hold back, ask nothing, and they'll focus more so or ask very little except when it's painful, uh, when they have to ask something and they'll focus mainly on things that they can't control. Yeah. Who are some athletes that you can, and, and not necessarily people that you work with, but who is out there that you think, oh man, this guy's got the, the mindset right, or this woman's got the mindset right. And you can just tell. It's a great question. I think like the first athlete that comes to mind is Kobe, uh, RIP, but that guy, could have written a hundred books and after he retired. That's probably the one athlete I think of a lot. Uh, Tom Brady, number two. I know he's not playing anymore, but when I think of mental performance and the ability to be resilient, I think of Tom Brady. I think Alexander Volkanovsky. I think the fact that every fight he got better and better and better and better and separated himself. And then, you know, he gets knocked out and comes out of his post fight being vulnerable and saying like, yeah, I see a sports psych. Like none of us are perfect. Like that level of, of lack of ego vulnerability. He's very good. There's a high schooler. His name is Bo Bassett. He is a high school sophomore that just won a college open. And, you know, mindset is something that's very strong for him without any formal training. It is something where there is no one that is more aggressive, has a higher pace, wants to get better, does all the things like, you know, he's going to be a dream catch to whatever college that he decides to go to. I think those are the people on the outside that I think of that really showcase that. I work with a lot of people that are exceptional at this. An example that I've used a lot is Kendall Rusing. I think Kendall is, is just, she's a 10 out of 10 emotional intelligence. She's very, very talented. She's willing to do all the things. She was already doing a lot of these things. She has seen a guy similar like me before, 
but she's smart enough to recognize that there's like levels to the game. Yeah. And she recognized this, said this to me herself. Mindset is probably my strongest thing, but I want to make it a weapon, not just something I'm good at. That's what high level people think. Henry Cejudo is also another one. Um, Henry Cejudo obsessively thinks about mindset over his career and even has his own little systems. So, you know, those are just some of the people that really stick out to me. And, and both, uh, Kindle and Henry Cejudo have to, you can, I can tell they have a great mindset just from the BS that they have to put up with online. Like they get hate for nothing. <laughs> both of yeah. them. I mean, Henry Cejudo should be celebrated by the MMA world as, you know, the greatest Olympic gold medalist, two time, uh, two weight division UFC champion. He should be the number one. And, uh, you know, he gets all the cringe and this and that and the other thing. And it doesn't stop him. It doesn't change him at all. Sometimes people get that hate and you can kind of see their person. Even just as a fan, I can tell like, oh, it's kind of getting to them. Like they're they're not making the jokes like they used to. They're a little bit more reserved at the press conference, whatever. He's not. So he just owns it, which is very well, admirable. Well, the reason being is because if you hang out with Henry, like I've hung out with Henry on a personal level a lot. Uh, he and Eric Alberson are the reason I worked with Wei Lee, Figueredo, Mark Madsen, you know, a bunch of high profile people. And Henry's the most like humble, normal, like nice guy. Like a lot of that stuff is an act. So if people want to yeah. hate on his like screen personality. He doesn't care. Um, another person that really sticks out to me. Oh, I was just at the tip of my tongue. Someone I was going to say that just has so much fun. I can, Oh, oh. Not the person that's always having fun, but you know who's hella smart is Sean O'Malley. I was on his podcast and similarly, like, yeah, there's parts of his life that are all over the internet and he embraces yeah, those yeah. things and they're part of him. That dude is smart. Tim Welch is smart. If you listen to my episode and Tim on the Sugar Show or Red Hawk Recap, both of those guys say things that like, are above the pay grade of a fighter and a coach. So either they've been mentored really well or they're just really smart. They they I they strike me as guys that put on the opposite act. It's like, oh man, we're just dumb pot smoking guy. We're just fighting, man. No, they <laughs> they have it locked in. Yeah, they are smart. I recommend anybody listen to those two episodes and you could see how smart both of those are and how calculated everything that they do. So yeah, I mean I have respect for anyone that is like uh, forward thinking and wants to get better, but those are just a handful of the guys that stand out. The the elite MMA coaches are, I think now MMA has reached a point in sport evolution where the coaching is fun to observe on its own. You know, 15 yeah. years ago, there was, there was really no, no thrill in watching the coaching. It was, hey, go out there and just beat the guy up. And now you're starting to see like Welch and um, I, I don't remember the guy's name, but Sean Strickland's coach. Um, Eric Nixick. That's who I was going to yeah, suggest. Yeah, Nixick. Nixick. That's right. I mean, these guys, like their insight, that's almost as enjoyable as the fight. It's just like, oh, what these is he These guys seeing? are professional coaches. Back yeah. in the day, it was just fighters that opened gyms that cornered fights. Yeah. <laughs> it was just guys who had, who were free that Saturday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or just in general, guys that weren't coaches. Like, listen, there's in Russia and Europe. If you want to coach, you have to go to four years of coaching school. You have to go to a university wow. and get a degree, right? So the quality of coaches are much higher because it's like a 
four-year degree. So now, you know, we have guys that are knowledgeable, but that are mainly fighters that coach. And then you've got professional coaches where there is science, strategy. You'd be surprised how many people don't watch film, having strategic tape sparring sessions, debriefing. You know, my buddy Chase Pammy, he runs uh, wrestling practice at the UFC PI. He's a former NCAA finalist, runs a club out in Vegas. And he works alongside Eric for like Danny Gage, uh, not Sean Strickland, but um, Cody Garbrandt, you know, Eric's at the wrestling practices. Eric's teaching Chase striking things that Cody and Dan are going to do so he can have wrestling drills that do it. Like Francis, what he did to Cyril Gaon and Francis, what he was able to do to Tyson Fury. Francis is Francis, but... Eric is is a brain um, that really is unique. And I, and I have to say, if we're going to talk about Eric Nixick, I have to talk about Eric Alberson as well, who's Henry's coach. Um, that guy is a incredible MMA genius and strategist. People don't realize he's coached, I don't know what it is, Eric, don't be mad at me, like 15 different world champions. And he coaches the Pitbull brothers. He's coached Korean Zombie. He's coached Wei Lee. He's coached, obviously, Henry. Um, I can't tell you however many more, but all these great coaches have things in common. Very selfless. They sacrifice their self, their life, their livelihood and things to make sure their athletes are successful. Obsessively studious um, as far as like game planning, optimization, you know, making sure their guys are ready. Coaching is not what it used to be, and there's levels to this game, and they are professionals now. Yeah, it's it's really fun to watch the guys who have grown into that. And 10 years from now, let's see what that crop of guys can continue to do. It's going to be a, another massive level ahead of even where we are right now, which is Well, because those awesome guys to are going to develop the people underneath them, so they're going to be even yeah. better. Yeah, there's going to be coaches who learn from Nixick and who learn from all these Tim Welch and all these guys, which is totally new. And as a observer of the sport, it's going to be awesome. Uh, it makes me glad that I'm not a fighter because I wouldn't want to have to fight a guy who's coached by you know the the Padawan of one of these guys. Well, um, listen, let me let me tell you one of the things that come across a lot in my early days when I was working with jujitsu fighters or even like lower level MMA fighters was, well, John Danaher's in their corner. Gordon Ryan's in their corner. You know, Greg Jackson's in their corner. I'm like, that's cool. They're well-trained, but that's not who's fighting tonight. And yeah. if you were fighting Gordon Ryan, I can understand. If you were fighting John Danaher, I can understand. If you were fighting Greg Jackson, I can understand, but you're not. You're fighting a guy that's coached by them on a not world-level stage and that is just some of that is in their gym. But even if we're in a UFC title fight and they have a world-class coach, again, like that's not who's fighting. And we can't worry about the quality of their coaching. We got to tell ourselves a story on, on, on how good our coaching was and how well yeah. prepared I was. Because we're not fighting John Danaher. We're, we're not fighting, you know, Gordon Bryan can't bring those medals on the mat. Yeah. It's just the guy that coaches by them. <clears throat> It gets me excited if I go up against a guy who's who's got a big name coach in his corner. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, this is more fun if I went if you know I go out there and do what exactly. I do. I'm gonna be happier. I, okay, I want to be vulnerable with you for a second and see. You tell me if I'm wrong 
in if, if can I get a free little free piece of advice on this? Free but, lesson, go for it. Yeah. So I have to have to hate the guy that I'm going against in jujitsu. That's the story I've told in my head. And and I will find anything wrong with this guy to like get me hyped up. And I'm sure that that's out of fear. I'm sure that that's masking some other emotion, but it's, I still do it. It could be as stupid as, oh, you see that guy in his first match? He pulled guard. Really? He's a, so he's a guard puller? Or oh, So he dyed his hair blonde. Who does he think he is? Eminem? Whatever. It's stupid. It's yeah. super judgmental. It's dumb. But then I go out there and I'm like mad at them. As soon as it's over, cool. You know, he, he's just Tony from Dallas. In competition and business. Dumb. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say in business, I have to do the same thing or I do the same thing. Oh man, I'm going to, you know, it's more difficult to have like a one-on-one opponent, but I still like find ways to create and manufacture enemies. And a lot of these people don't even know they're in my enemy and they're really like genuinely not, but I have to be motivated that way. Yeah. So, I mean, I think like self-awareness is key. If that gets you consistent, sustainable results then it works. Even if it's weird, some people want to eat tacos the night before and they win when they eat tacos, like, you know, whatever works for you. What I would say though, as blanket statements, anger, hate, intensity, that produces the same chemicals as stress. Your brain can't know the difference between that level of intensity. So on a blanket, on a, you know, broad scale, like the, the most dominant attitude is excitement and gratitude. Meaning, Instead of maybe, and again, I'm not saying for you to change anything, but you know, in in a general scheme of things, I compete my best when I'm angry. I compete my best when I'm this. No, studies and statistics show we compete our best when we're excited. So instead of feeling like I have to hate this guy, I get an opportunity to kick his ass. Maybe it's like get an opportunity to kick his ass. And oh uh, like, yeah, there you go. So have to get to opportunity yeah. obligation. When we feel like I have to do something, your brain will produce cortisol, which produces lactic acid. Um, it produces cognitive fatigue, physical fatigue, brain fog. Uh, you get tired. And, you know, uh, that anger and intensity, that's uh, the MMA of past, right? Now, what are like the long-term champions do when they walk out? Like, they're smiling. Is he yeah. like dancing and like doing a choreographed dance? Like, John Jones is lifting his arms up, just <sighs> taking it all in. So, what you're doing is not wrong, but if I would say like on a, on a broader scale, instead of focusing on an unsustainable emotion like anger and hate, find where the opportunity and excitement is. So instead of I have to be angry and not like this guy, right? Like where is the opportunity for you? So the opportunity for me to, again, you could use aggressive language. I always tell people yeah. like, happy fighters are, 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 are dangerous fighters. It's not... Like having fun is not hee hee aha. Like I am excited to make the ref save your life today. I am excited yeah. to watch you get tired. I'm excited to hear you breathing heavy underneath me where I know I could tap you, but I want you to think about tapping a pressure before I actually squeeze to where you lose oxygen. Yeah. No, that's- Take that sadistic mindset and then apply yeah. it to excitement and opportunity because that will produce dopamine, which will allow you to not get tired. You'll be more focused and you'll enjoy it. Being more positive instead of being negative. That's perfect. I wouldn't say positive, negative. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of that word. More so like productive. Um, yeah, okay. 
it's a, uh, a, a gratitude and excitement are more m- much more productive than hate or envy or whatever. Right. And when I say gratitude, like thankful for the opportunity, like where is the opportunity? Not just like, yeah. you know, uh, I'm thankful for God, family, friends, like gratitude comes ultimately when in performance, when we're focused on opportunity and when we're grateful and happy and excited, we produce dopamine instead of cortisol. And dopamine is the fatigue killer. Dopamine is the focus hormone. It's the happy hormone. When we're happy, we're allowed to think per, uh, flexibly, make adjustments versus like under intensity, similar to stress, we get tired easily. It's hard to have flexible thinking. We don't make the best decisions. So be, be productive in a positive manner because positivity can get toxic really quick. And it's not fun either when I'm over there like, worried about you know being mean in my heart to this guy who didn't do anything yeah like you know i I like winning i like making them feel uncomfortable i like when they if they don't want to tap that it's going to be really painful i i like making it making them suffer making the opponent suffer but i don't like having all these i don't like the anger really that's what gets you excited so if that gets you excited produce your dopamine and i'm excited for that not like I have to pretend to hate you for the yeah, next seven yeah, minutes, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's super helpful. Yeah, what well, would you say is your, your biggest tip to business owners, you know, who maybe they're not fighters and not jujitsu players. What's one thing that regular guy running a company could take away from what we've discussed? I think what we said earlier, start with why most people burn out, make poor decisions, become unhappy, unfulfilled when they lose connection with their why. I would do an audit of your alignment. You know, why did you start this? Is that still, why did you start this and why have you continued to do this, right? Like what's your why that started you and why are you continuing to do this? Is that why still the same? That changed for me at the FBI. That's when I knew it was time to leave, okay? Is that why connected to the things that you love, right? What do you love about your, or like about your business? Are those things still present, right? Or have you settled now like I did where I used to love like the content of my work. I used to love like hunting people and, you know, national security surveillance cases, stuff like that. Now I have to settle with, well, I like my coworkers and I like my job security and I like these things. Is your why connected to your what? And do you have a clear plan on how to get on how to measure and get better at scale. Why, what, and how? So that's what I would suggest. Start with why and you know, figure out the beyond the surface level what those things are. Figure out what you love about your job. Are those things still true and connected? And then you can ask yourself, what's more important? What you love and why you're doing it, or the reasons you're frustrated and the things that uh, and the things that cause you distraction. And something that has helped my clients a lot is instead of focusing on a million goals, ultimately when we perform, and this would be no different as a business owner, because I ask my clients, write down three words you would hope someone would describe you as a competitor, three words someone would describe you as a teammate, and then if they're a student, employee, or business owner, three, three words you would hope your employees would describe you as. So mm. if you follow those three words, what that is, is you create an identity. Based around that identity, you create standards. And then you create identity-based habits around those standards. If you hold yourself to those standards and those are words that are meaningful 
Let's take a, a, a football player. If they're relentless, reliable, and tough, five out of five on each of those. We probably played a good game. Doesn't mean that we lost, doesn't mean that we won, but I went after every ball, wasn't afraid of anyone. I, I studied my film and I yeah, was where yeah. I was supposed to be. So if a business owner can figure out with the three words they would hope someone would describe themselves as a boss and how someone would describe like the culture of the business, if you hold yourself to those three words, everything else will take care of itself. And I'm not saying it solves all your problems, but think of those three words like your North Star. Like North Star mm. isn't going to get me home, but it tells me the yeah. general direction of where I need to go. It, it, I'm thinking of Dan Campbell as you're talking about the, the three words, even if we lose, if we hold to these three words, like when he got hired by the Detroit Lions to be their head coach, he comes out and he gives that, you know, we're going to bite your kneecaps off speech. Everybody starts making fun of him. I, w- I was like, that's awesome. You know, not because yeah. they're going to bite their kneecaps off, but because at least there's a dang identity. You know, I'm yeah, telling you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I want, I want to root for a team that has an identity. You know, they don't have to win the Super Bowl for me to have fun rooting for that team. And and I, I, w- I want the team, you know, I want my employees, I want my team to have an identity. And that way I know if we're succeeding because we cannot control the outcome. We can't, we can't control whether we win or lose. We can control the inputs, right? We can control the process. Kirby Smart, coach of uh, University of Georgia football team, says that all the time. We can't control whether we win. We can control what we can control but ultimately, we can't control the outcome. So if we're measuring our success on whether we had a 12-0 season or not, we're measuring the wrong thing, uh, and we're going to lose sight of what's going to allow us to be 12-0 anyway. 100%. And everyone sets goals and expectations that we can't control that we're living up to for the wrong reasons. Instead, we need to create an identity and then create standards. And then we don't negotiate with the standard. And then we measure the standard. You have tangible data points that if you set those three words, examples of those, you should be able to collect data on a daily or weekly basis through journaling or internal or external assessment to where you can see yourself moving the needle. Yeah. One thing that uh, standing out to me is what we measure uh, can never be the why. And that's what it sounds like you're saying is whatever it is that you measure can't be the why, but whatever is your why has to have something that is measurable. Your why has to be bigger than you and not connected to outcomes or money or results. And so for a lot of people, faith is the biggest mental edge because when God is first, their sport is not, their business is not, um, you know, and without faith, then what it has to be is it has to be something bigger than you, not connected to outcomes, ego, or other people. And when you find what that why is, then it's very easy for you to figure out how to overcome adversity, especially if you have a plan to consistently get better. Because so even if I'm not ready to figure it out now, like my trajectory is going to allow me. So it's not that I can't figure it out. It's I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Mike. I appreciate all of your insights and I know our listeners do too. Where can people connect with you and learn more about the work that you do? For sure. So uh, I'm finishing the guts of building the official website, but you can go to unfairadvantagemindset.com just to get a little sneak peek. Where most people find me is Instagram, mindset underscore Mike not hard to find. And if you're interested in any sort of work, whether it's, you know, one-on-one executive coaching, uh, somebody in sports is on here, or you'd like me to bring me in to help you build culture for your business. I do that very often. And I would be happy to respond that any or all the above. So unfairadvantagemindset.com just gives you a preview 
Okay. Best ways to contact me is Instagram or uh, my phone number and email is also attached to that as well. So DM me, email me, mike at unfairadvantagemindset.com or uh, you can find my phone number if you're bold enough to call me. Cool. Thanks, Mike. My takeaways from talking to Mike are several. One, start with why. We've talked about it so many times on the podcast. It's in my book. <laughs> I cannot get enough of that. So when it's validated by someone with the expertise and credibility that Mike has, it makes me even more confident that the why is important, it's vital, and it's often overlooked. The second is positive and productive emotions like excitement and gratitude are a lot more motivating than fear, anxiety, or avoidance. And if I could reframe that, it's about going to not going away. So the same mindset that allows for a successful and fulfilling retirement allows for a successful and fulfilling everything else. And the example that we used, it was my jujitsu matches. So I don't want to run away from something. I want to run toward something. So if I'm angry, if I'm fearful, if I'm hateful, I'm running away from something. If I'm thankful, excited, gracious, grateful, I'm running to something. Those are my two big takeaways. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly. Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly Podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.